And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. You know, there's a team in Denver. I think they're pretty good. They won the championship last year, from what I recall. 39-19, and and Nikola Jokic in his last three games... 21, 19, and 15 on 10 of 10 shooting. 29, 15, and 14 on 12 of 7 shooting. Now that's against the Wizards and the Blazers, whatever. You just have congratulations, Denver. You beat bad teams. You could throw those away if you're a Denver skeptic. Going into the red-hot Golden State Warriors. Toast of the NBA for the last couple of weeks. Can they become a contender again? A cool 32, 16, and 16 on 13 of 24 shooting, reasserting his grip on the MVP, and that was a landmark win if the Nuggets need a landmark win. They probably don't. Uh, I thought it was a fantastic uh, playoff-level performance from them. They brought their A defense. We can talk about that. Uh, They brought their A playoff rotation with a twist of Zeke Naji thrown in, which I was happy to see, and they overcame a rather large early deficit and a loud crowd. And now, as we bring in Adam Morris from DNVR Sports and other places, they are facing a next five-game slate where we're going to find out how much does this team really care about home court advantage. Home against the Kings, home against the Heat, at Lakers, home against Phoenix, home against Boston. The Nuggets are currently third behind Minnesota and Oklahoma City. And uh, they had home court last year for the finals run, of course. They have played uh, 27 home games and 31 road games. They got some home games coming to them. And they have certainly come out of the shoot here in the second half of the season. Like they do care about maybe getting home court advantage. I just want to give the biggest, broadest question (laughs) for someone who lives this team every day. We just don't talk about them at ESPN because they're in Denver. I mean, you know, I have a soft spot for the Nuggets. I love the Nuggets. I talk about them a lot. But, and they're just, I think people think they're just kind of coasting along waiting for the playoffs to start. Uh, They are tied for ninth in offense, tied for 10th in defense. That's a good good number. Plus 4.1 per 100 possessions. That's eighth. Seems underwhelming, right? You start to look back and you're like, how many championship teams have had net ratings in like that three, four, five range? Can't be that many. Oh, I remember one. Last year's Denver Nuggets because their two best players appear to thrive under high-pressure situation. Adam Morris... Where are we on this team? You feeling good? You feeling confident? As confident as you were a year ago? Hmm. I think probably as confident as a year ago because, of course, last year they hadn't done it before, so they hadn't proven it. This year they have, but to your point, they've been underwhelming. But I have a theory about this, Zach, that I'm curious what you think. So every year their their plus minus is lower than you would expect given their record and given what you think of them. Plus four. I don't even know what the number you said. Plus four or something. There are teams that are plus nine, plus ten. And I think that the reason for that is Denver is, I've compared them to Floyd Mayweather. They're not going to throw a bunch of knockout punches and win easy and do all these big, oh, they won by 38 points tonight and they did this or that. They just kind of always put you in a bind, slowly work you down and and beat you. And they beat you with mid-range. Jokic beat you with floaters. They beat you with a very slow pace, half-court offense. And then they get to clunch time and they really defend. And they, it's not that they eke out a win. It's just that they strategically wear you down into a win. And then the result of that is one, I think you, you know, when you're not dialed in, you're not going to get some of those easy, you know, you don't build giant leads. So you're a little more vulnerable. And two, they just happen to win a lot of games by seven points, six points, five points. And you never felt like they were going to lose, but it's just, that's just their style. So watching them play, 
Jokic, Murray, Aaron Gordon, the, the starting lineup looks exactly like last year, if not a little bit better. Questions about the bench. But yes, I feel confident about them because they look like the team that dominated the playoffs last year. Yeah, they're starters, uh, which is, if not the best lineup in the NBA, um, tied for Boston with the quote, just the magical fake title, best lineup in the NBA. They're certainly the most aesthetically pleasing lineup to watch in the NBA, just like like a magic basketball combination of skills. Uh, plus 14 per 100 possessions. They are plus 14 with Murray and Jokic on the floor. Um, I guess I would ask this. Do you care more about seeding at the top, like for, for home court purposes, or do you care more about who Denver's first-round opponent is? Because if you look at the projection systems, right now they're overwhelmingly likely to be third or fourth. Now, right. some some systems give them like a 30% chance at one and two. Some give them a little bit less than that. If they're third or fourth, and I'm not ready to posit that because this team, first of all, they have three games left against Minnesota. Um, right. Tough matchup for them, but still three games to go. They lost the first one, so they can make up ground there easy. But if they're three and four, you you got a grab bag that's like, it's Luka maybe here. It's maybe the Suns dudes over here. Maybe things break right. No disrespect for the Kings, but the Kings, the Pelicans, nobody knows what to make of. Um, what are you more focused on in terms of like projecting out the playoff path? Well, I think I align with the Nuggets in what they have said about this very question, which is a couple of factors here. One, we're not going to know. I don't think we're going to know matchups until the final day this year, this season, because there's so much, so many teams are jumbled up one through four and then five through through 10. So I don't think we're going to know the matchups and it's almost difficult to play that matchup game. And then secondly, if you look at Minnesota and Oklahoma City, and I don't, I'm not trying to disrespect them. I love both of those teams and how they play, but they're unproven. And I think Denver did this last year, even when they were looking at it, is teams like Memphis, are they? Are we sure they're going to be in the conference finals? And are we going to push ourselves to get that one seed if we feel like, hey, that team's less than a coin flip to make it there? I think Denver probably looks at it similar. And when they were asked this question about seeding or opponent, I actually heard a common theme from all of the players and the coaching staff, which is we don't care about either of those. It's more about us finding the style of play we need in the playoffs and finding a rhythm there. Because over the course of a long season, you have moments where you find that, and then you have moments where you fall out of it. And I think they're just looking at, we're going to win if we can just play our basketball, which we found and peaked going into the playoffs last year. They peaked in the playoffs. If we find that rhythm, I think they feel confident whether they're the three seed, the four, the two, or whatever. And the matchups are going to be the matchups, whatever they fall the last day of the season. Yeah, I there are certain like I just would rather not see Luca across the court from me for like he just terrifies me just by himself. Uh, and they're playing pretty well. They got blown out by the Pacers last night, but they're playing pretty well. Uh, you were going to say something about Luca. I could tell you had a, you had a, you had. Well, something I just was going to throw it to the other side and say you know Gafford Lively. That's the easiest matchup for Jokic. So you're right, Luca's scary. But that's a zero resistance front court for for Nikola Jokic. So I would look at that. That's going to be a series with two 40-point triple-double edges from two guys. So your point is is well made, but I think it's equally as tough for them on the other side. Well, you were you got ahead of where I was going, which is I just think offensively, I there's no matchup that gives me any anxiety about the Denver Nuggets offense. Now, there are, are little things that have happened this year that are interesting to me, but I just think this is unstoppable is too strong a word. It's hard for me to see any defense holding them to, let's say, 
league average or worse offense over a seven game series. Jokic is too good. He's the best player in the NBA. He has now, uh, based on this stretch of games, I think gone back in front in the MVP leaderboard for me and for probably most voters over SGA, who's making a hell of a case. I just don't, and, and I do think something about the way they play slower at times with mix. I like when they mix in, like throw the ball, you know, throw the home run pass, like get Aaron Gordon some buckets in transition, but methodical, patient, and with Murray and Jokic's ability to hit shots from everywhere on the court. And my God, is Murray a big shot shot maker, a tough shot shot maker, like spinning, fading mid-range. It's ridiculous how good he is. I do think their offense is more built for the playoffs than even the average contending team. Defensively, I mentioned their 10th in defense. Um, that Warriors game, like, I don't I wouldn't say the Warriors are like the white whale for the Nuggets, but there's a lot of people, including people within the Warriors, who are curious to see how they operating at full throttle, whatever that means for them now, would match up with a healthy Nuggets team. Remember, they did beat them in the playoffs on their on their way to the title, but that was not a healthy Nuggets team, no Murray, no Porter. It's kind of a fake Nuggets team, really, like in tribute to Jokic that it was even semi-competitive. You know, this idea that, well, you know, we spam that Steph Draymond pick and roll. We can force Jokic to guard in space, you know, uh, stretch Denver to its breaking point, get him running around. And the Nuggets showed up for that game like they had heard all that. And we're like, oh, we're not we're not really afraid of this. Like Jokic can go up to the level of the screen against Steph. Steph's going to get some step back threes, some, you know, he'll shake them a couple times. Draymond's going to roll. And we have faith in our rotations behind the play, especially if you give us just one, let alone two, guys who are just so-so three-point shooters where, hey, maybe Aaron Gordon can sneak in from the strong side corner, which you're not supposed to do, provide a little bit more support. And if you watch them move, if you watch the help defenders move on some of those Steph Draymond pick and rolls, it was beautiful to watch. In at the same time, out at the same time. One guy in, then he recovers, then the other guy from the other corner comes in. It was beautiful. They were up for it. And... If they defend at that level with that level of connectivity and urgency, you can talk to me about the bench and maybe we'll get there. They're just they they I've said all year the West still goes through Denver and these next five games will be telling. I, I still think they're the best team in the West. Well, I want to go to your point here about the pick and roll because I think it's an interesting one for understanding Denver. Denver I think we've talked about this before. They can't defend easy because they don't have the athleticism and the rib protection. That's how you win easy. But they can win difficult, and that's why there's always these marquee games, these measuring six games where they look like they did last night. It's very mentally exhausting and mentally taxing to play the style of defense that they played. In the playoffs, you can use that energy. And Jokic is the key to all of this. When you look at where has Jokic improved as a player, he continues to get physically stronger, I think, every year, just as most people do. You know, up until I don't know, thirty-one, thirty-two, you just get more, more strength. I mean, for me, for me, uh, it just uh, continues into my mid forties. Just, uh, it just get, just physically, I get in better shape, stronger every year. I, I was meaning not athletes of your level, Zach, of course, but, um, but Yoke, you know, the other area he's gotten a lot better, I think, and he actually made reference to this in an interview not too long ago, was that he feels like he is improving his defensive basketball IQ. And it's so interesting because we think of him having a 100 IQ, right? Because we always think of that as as offensive. But he was talking about really studying and trying to learn the defensive uh, edges that you can gain. And I think when you watch him closely, you see that. And last night, you know, the pick and roll when you play the drop covers, that they, or when you play up, I'm sorry, up at the level of the screen, the way he likes to play, 
there's a lot of cat and mouse going on. It's like a giant paper, rock, scissors game. And he has gotten so good at that because his reaction time is inherently quick. He's just a very quick reactor. But two, I think his anticipation gets better. So last night he has four steals. I think he has even more deflections, a lot of those in the fourth quarter and in the clutch. And I just think that he has gotten a lot better at dr being Draymond-esque almost and, and reading and anticipating what's going on and making quick breaks on the ball. And that's a big reason why I think that they can be a good defensive team in, in the playoffs. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And I just want I want your I just want to go rapid fire through some things. Category one is things that have changed this year statistically for the Nuggets, and I want you to explain to me why or if it's anything. It's we're kind of playing is this anything like the Orlando Magic broadcast does, my beloved Orlando Magic broadcast. Um, offensively, they are twenty eighth in three point rate. They were never a high three point team. Percentage-wise, their portion of shot attempts from three is almost unchanged, but the league is taking more threes. They were 22nd last year. So their threes have fallen to almost bottom of the league. Their shots at the rim are down slightly. They were 6th last year, 8th this year, down 2%. Of course, now that means they're up in mid-range shots. Is that anything? I would guess it's not because I would imagine that those numbers are largely about the non-starting lineup numbers. Those are probably largely numbers that are – staggered lineups and different things. You had Bruce Brown last year who was very good at putting pressure on the rim. I think it was one of the things they – everybody thinks you lost his defense, you lost this. I think they lost his ball handling and they lost his his toughness and they lost that pressure that he can put on the rim. And then secondly, I think there is a little bit of championship fatigue in that specific aspect. And I look at Aaron Gordon's first 15 games of the season, maybe 20 games of the season – he specifically was not putting pressure on the rim the same way. And he even has opened up about uh, about it a little bit. Short offseason, fatigue, mentally not there. So I, I would imagine that those numbers have normalized over the back half of the season. And I would imagine that they normalize when you look at the starting lineup and take away the Christian Browns and the Peyton Watsons who are not good at finishing or getting to the rim. Well, that's that's part of it is you'd like to have someone – so much attention has been paid to the bench, and we will inevitably discuss that. They just don't bring anyone off the bench that is a really a threat to shoot. Like, Christian Brown is not going to be guarded. And he'll have games where he makes three out of four and punishes that style of defense. Peyton Watson's up to 34%. I love, I love everything about Peyton Watson. Yeah. I just would like them to have one guy that would come off the bench and make you think, this guy can hit shots. That's what Strother looked like he was going to be. And I think there's a what if scenario where he doesn't know he miss like almost two months of time or something like that, where if he stays healthy – I think he could have cracked their postseason rotation and become that player. Now, it's interesting that Najee got those minutes last night. He he theoretically is a stretch five, not really in reality, though. Um, so that's what we're getting at. So, okay, so you're on the on – the, it's not really anything. I kind of agree with that. I think their offense is what it is. Um, defense, I mentioned their defense looks kind of stouter to me overall and on some nights in particular when they're geared up. Um, third fewest three-point attempts allowed in the league this year. Is that a thing? I mean, it's not like they allowed a ton last year, but they were average. Average to third in terms of opponent three-point volume is a big deal. What is going on there? I would guess that the biggest thing here is the length that they've added. I mean, one of the differences between last year and, and this year, Peyton Watson's enormous. You know, 6'9", I think he has one of the longest standing reaches of a guy, of a guy his height. He has these really long arms. Closes out phenomenally. Tenacious. Christian Brown also has a lot of length. So my hunch would be that they just have a lot of length. When they play their core guys, even Reggie Jackson is one of those abnormally long wingspan guys. So when they play their full eight, nine, nine-man rotation, defensively they have a lot of length to close out on you. 
So that would be my hunch. I think they have more good, you know, solid defenders this year just in general. Um, but I would say that this one to me is half true. It's probably a half truth, as I think a lot of these three-point numbers uh, are always let no no more than half true. Well, maybe the length also explains this because this one, it, I, my eyes open a little bit. They're sixth in lowest field goal percentage allowed at the rim. Sixth. Mm-hmm. They were 29th last year. Wow. Um, and Jokic still is not really a rim protector. T- opponents are still shooting well with him at, near the rim. Um, is that anything? That's that's That could be just – I mean, I think Michael Porter Jr. Can, has continued to make strides defensively. AG is what he is. By the way, you mentioned got off to a slow start pressuring the rim. The last month – he seems like in half of their games, he's like out for blood. He's out to like bludgeon people near the basket and do like a flex over them while getting an and one, which I love. I, when he's doing that, I'm like, oh, oh, this is a serious game. Just It's just something that number is interesting to me. I don't know. The, the defensive part of it, I'm not so sure. I wasn't aware of this number, which makes me think, you know, I, it wasn't something that was jumping off the screen when I watch him, that they're really protecting. It, it hasn't to me either. So I would imagine that that one probably has a little bit of noise to it. But again, Denver's numbers last year were so disguised by how bad their bench was, as as is the case this year. It was diff- It was bad in a different direction. This year they do have Peyton Watson and Christian Brown who have played almost every single game this year. And those guys are really good defenders. Like even for young players, they're really good defenders. Their weaknesses come in other spots. So I would imagine there's a little bit of, I just think Denver has more defensive upside, but I would guess that the number overall is probably pretty noisy. Now, I may be – let's just do the bench thing. I may be just so seduced by Murray and Jokic and the beauty of this starting five and how all the pieces fit together that I have never really been all that concerned about the departures of Bruce Brown and Jeff Green. And with respect to Jeff Green, like, it's really Bruce Brown. Like, Jeff Green is a replaceable NBA player at this point, even as your eighth man. I wasn't concerned at the time. I wasn't concerned when I knew almost nothing about how Peyton Watson was going to play this year and how Julian Strother might or might not play this year. And then the numbers sucked again. The plus minus sucks. Jokic, they're plus 10 with Jokic on the floor and minus 9 with Jokic off the floor. They're minus 17 when Murray per 100 possessions. Minus 17 with Murray on the floor and Jokic on the bench. That's cleaning the glass. That's... Those are just bad numbers. And yet through it all, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that worried because I, I, Christian Brown showed up when it mattered last year. Now he, he, he's, his minutes shrunk during the Phoenix series and went back up during the finals, but he showed up. Peyton Watson has my trust. I'm in on Peyton Watson. And I mentioned playoff rotation. You saw it last night and you've seen it in snippets. And you, I know you because I follow you on Twitter. Your antennas go up when you see it. Last night we saw Aaron Gordon at center in in parts of the non-Jokic minutes with Jamal Murray on the floor. They have not gone to that look very much this year. That's like 80 minutes they have with Murray on, Gordon on, Jokic off. Then in the second half when they played Najee, I think they had Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. on the floor at the same time for at least part of that with Najee and with either Reggie Jackson or Jamal Murray or both. I just think if they mix and match it enough and mix in – some K- KCP tends to linger pretty long with Jokic. They, they're kind of attached to each other. Mix in enough of the starters so that you don't get too much Reggie Jackson, Jamal Murray together minutes. Look, every team is vulnerable to injuries. And like, yeah, one guy gets hurt. The whole kind of puzzle falls apart. Even if it's like, even if it's Peyton Watson getting hurt, the whole puzzle kind of falls apart in terms of what we're talking about. 
if they have everyone, I might just be naive. I might be downplaying the experience factor and the veteran savvy and all that. I just haven't cared for a second this year. Should I care more? I think you're spot on with it, honestly. And the reason is Denver, more than any other team in the NBA, Denver likes to play their starting lineup heavy minutes. This has been true the entirety of Michael Malone of the Michael Malone era since before they were a contending team. He just likes his starting lineup playing a lot of minutes, which means you have a lot of minutes that are just your bench. And to me, the number is not Jokic off the court because that makes it sound like there's no solution to it. The real thing is DeAndre Jordan on the court, Zeke Naji on the court as a center in, in previous seasons, you know, since basically Mason Plumlee, they haven't had a very good backup center, a very good proven backup center. And so they go to these lineups, I think, knowing that they're handicapped, knowing that they don't work. And then it looks, it makes everybody else look bad. You know, then Christian Brown struggling and you got all this stuff this year. And, and the playoffs, this was true last year, but this year they've gone to it a handful of times. Aaron Gordon at center. Okay, we're going to play two-star. We're going to play Murray, Porter, and Gordon, and now we're going to throw Christian and, and Peyton around them. Those lineups have crushed. W what I mean to say is when they have gone to their playoff rotation, which is just eight guys, and we're going to play a little heavier minutes, they have looked phenomenal. Not just good, they have looked phenomenal, and that's what happened last year in the playoffs. You are right. It does mean that they're thin. An injury or, or even foul trouble maybe is going to make things a little bit difficult in a series. Maybe even more so than most teams. Like if you look at Dallas, they lose Josh Green to injury. Okay, Dante Exum, you're basically the same role. You guys, are, you're doing fine. You, you just swap one in for the other. Denver, I think, has eight guys that can play, and they have eight uh, an eight-man rotation that allows them to have two or three of their most important players that makes all of their lineups make sense. So I don't think it's an issue at all. I'm with you. If they get to the playoffs healthy, they're going to have 48 minutes of very, very good uh, rotational play. I also just think fundamentally – there is no good answer to Nikola Jokic, and the league has not found one yet. And even last night, I mean, Draymond is one of maybe four guys in the entire NBA who can be kind of a pain for Jokic because, A, he's super low to the ground and physical, and Jokic can't really back him down like he can 95% of NBA big men. And Draymond gets a lot of leeway from the refs to be super physical because he's Draymond Green. He's undersized. He's a defensive player of the year. He's one of the greatest defenders of his generation. Once he settled into the game, I don't it he didn't really have too much trouble with the Warriors. And you've seen teams flirt with it this year. Boston did it. I, I think Indiana maybe did it with Miles Turner. Golden State half did it for portions of last night. Oh, we're not gonna send too much help. We'll like do the little half slides here, half slide there. Maybe try to time a second guy coming when he picks up his dribble. That, you're, he's just gonna roast you in the playoffs if you don't send help. I don't even think he really looked bothered too much by Draymond. And if he's not bothered by Draymond, he's not going to be bothered by anybody. But but one thing that is different this year compared to last year when they went 16-4 and four in the playoffs and blitzed through everybody is the West is better. Yeah, The West is better at the top. It's better around them. It's better everywhere. Like if you get Luka in the first round or you get Zion, it's just a nightmare every single round. Um, and to review, last year they uh, lost one game to Minnesota – one game to the Lakers and in between two games to Phoenix, right? Yeah. Is that right? That's correct. No, they swept the Lakers. I'm sorry, swept the Lakers. The Lakers of course, they swept the Lakers. The greatest to Miami. Yeah, the greatest sweep in the history of the NBA the by sweep, the yeah. by the losing team. Let's talk about the top three in the West around them this year. Okay. Um, Minnesota, they are zero and one against Minnesota. With three games left. Oklahoma City, that season series is over. 
Denver went one and three. Jokic missed the last game, but Murray played all four, I believe. Clippers, uh, the Nuggets are up 2-1 with one game remaining and have more or less owned the Clippers since the bubble, although the Clippers won the most recent game in a game that felt important for them. Which of those three matchups worries you the most for the Nuggets and why? Well, I will say that Oklahoma City worries me the least. And I just, those games, you mentioned that, you know, people were available for that one. I think they were missing a key starter in every single one of them. And I, I just feel very confident that Jokic, I always look at it and go, does Jokic have a good matchup? Then that's where everything starts. And I think that that's one of the easier matchups. They just don't physically have somebody to match up with them. So they're the easier. Can I, can I give you one thing that's interesting to me about Oklahoma City? Yeah. Is when you take the giddy element of it out and you don't allow any team to stash their center on giddy, and you now then you open up the the chess match of like, will they try to put Jokic on Dort at all? And Dort's a better shooter, but is not super dynamic with the ball. If you get to a situation where Jokic has got to guard Chet for heavy, heavy possessions in a playoff, and he's done it obviously in the regular season because people aren't going to get too crazy in the regular season with tactics and stuff. The difference between Chet and Draymond is Chet's a legit pick and pop threat, and that's a, that's. If you put that guy with four shooters or three shooters and Shea around him, that gets interesting to me. But I, I do think Denver's just so big and polished that I mean, obviously, I'm pick, I would pick Denver to beat the Thunder in the series. But that's just one wrinkle I, I would be in my back pocket if I were the Thunder. Okay, continue. I think Denver would have a hard time guarding him for sure. I mean, even without that wrinkle, I will say that I've watched enough Jokic playoff series that guys that are giving up a significant weight advantage tend to foul out against Jokic a lot and I think that that would probably happen in that series that they would be able to get him onto because I don't think they would have him guard Jokic but I think they would be able to get him on there and and draw fouls and by the way Aaron Gordon's very good at that as well so I that that would to me is the is the least and again I love the Thunder this is not shade at them the Clippers are interesting because I think they're more talented and they present more of a of a, of a challenge if you just look at the rosters and they have the bigs that to combat them but to me Oklahoma or the Minnesota Timberwolves who were by the way designed by Tim Conley with this crazy lineup with with bigs and with length on the perimeter, to me is a team that was built to beat the Denver Nuggets. I think that was a team that Tim Conley saw two years ago when he went over there and said, guys, here's the future of the of the Western Conference. That's the team that's going to be on top, and we have to start building for them. So you have the two bigs, well, really three bigs, so you have extra bodies even off the bench to throw at them, with, and the ability to put Rudy Gobert off of Jokic, which is one of the huge keys. Do you have somebody big enough to guard Jokic, or at least to stand behind him, so that you could bring Rudy Gobert over as a help? They have that. And then they have the length on the perimeter to guard Murray, and not just with one guy. If it was just Jaden McDaniels, I would say, okay, they're going to attack him. They're going to draw fouls. He's foul prone. Offensively, this or that. But to kill Alexander Walker is a heck of a defender for him. He's He's been an under-the-radar essential piece for the Timberwolves this year essential and I still can't believe like he went what did he go New Orleans Portland Portland or no Jazz the Jazz just got rid of him it's I don't know multiple teams just were like we don't even want this guy on our team yeah I don't know if he knew what he was supposed to be because I think he is an incredible defensive player with a little offense and I think every player comes in thinking they're an offensive player with a little defense but he's the thing it's not just that those two players are good defensively Nikhil Alexander Walker in particular is phenomenal at guarding ball handlers in the pick and roll he's so skinny and so hard to screen he fights so hard to get around screens I think he's one of the toughest guys to screen and he has the length to challenge Murray those are the types of defenders that Murray has most typically struggled with and Denver if you want to talk about concern level for Denver like going into a playoffs 
Murray is such a difficult to predict player because he's so talented at his best. He's a super duper star in the playoffs. But if you go back and look at his playoff run, he was more hit or miss in the first two rounds than you will remember. He was almost great in every game in the Lakers series, every game in the Miami series. But there was a little ramping up to him that happened last year in the playoffs. Yeah, again, game one of the of the first round, he's incredible. I think game one of the Suns round, he was incredible. But games in that Suns round in, in particular, games three and four, he was he was not that great. And they could survive that last year because, again, Minnesota was shorthanded. I think the Suns were just an incomplete team. But this year, I don't know. They might draw a matchup either in the first or second round that requires Murray to be great in every game. And that's the what's one of the things that I'm a little bit concerned about. And if you talk about a Minnesota, that's a team that has the bodies to make it as difficult for both of Denver's key players as possible. The flip side of it is, I don't think that they can score either. And no matter what perfect defense is on Denver, they're still going to score. I don't think you're holding Denver to 80, 85, 90 points. They're going to still find a way to score. And that's why I still think that's a good matchup for Denver. So you nailed it with McDaniels on Murray. And it's not just McDaniels, to your point, but like that looms almost as important to me as the whole Gobert on Aaron Gordon rover thing that semi-bothers them. That's a wild card to me. I'm with you that Minnesota's offense is sort of TBD when the, when the lights get bright. Um, something you just said was very interesting about Murray. And even last night against the Warriors, which they kind of run away from the Warriors at the end of the game. They really were dependent on two guys to do pretty much all the shot creation. Like, we know what KCP is. He's great at what he is. He runs around, he shoots threes, he gets his little elbow actions. AG, cutter, transition. Occasionally, you know, we saw, particularly in the finals, like, if he gets cross matches, he'll put people in the basket. Remember we talked before the season, and I said the most interesting thing about the Nuggets for me this year was I want to see if Michael Porter Jr. has another level to get to, and particularly as a shot creator. And with a little bit, you know, a, a few closeout attacks here and there where he'll put the ball on the floor and make the next pass, it looks great. We just haven't really seen that. And that's the one – I don't. maybe I'm wrong, but give me your temperature take on Michael Porter Jr. I mean, offensively, you know, he did 34 the other night. He could hit eight threes in a game, and that's essentially what they need him to do. There are just some moments where you're like, I wish they had one more guy on the floor that I had a little more faith in could, like, dribble and do something with the ball. I, I completely agree with you about that being a thing. I think Michael Porter is the player he was last year by and large, but I don't think it is as big of an issue as, as I think you, you're you kind of insinuating or at least questioning because to, to rewind a little bit, Murray goes down and they finish off that season really well. If you recall, there was like 18 games left and Denver played really well with Porter, Gordon, and Jokic and they go into the playoffs, they win a series and then, and then they ultimately go down. The following year, this is the year to be clear. They beat Portland in the first round, right? And then with Campazzo right. and Austin Rivers starting right. a guard, and then they right. lose to Phoenix, and they kind of get rolled out uh, out of the arena by the Suns, but who yeah. go on to make the finals, right? And the following year, you know, Murray's going to be out for the whole year, but I was excited to see Michael Porter because I thought this is a perfect developmental year for Michael Porter. He's going to now be the second scorer. You're going to have to develop a two man chemistry with Jokic, and they're going to have to lean into it a little bit more. And he gets hurt immediately, and he misses the entire season. And I think at that moment, Michael Porter's ceiling capped because that year, I think there's a sliding doors where we can go through that year, and he has more of that game to him, and the Nuggets have worked that into their system more. He goes through the injury, has to come all the way back through the rehab and all that process. And I just think Denver has, he is now almost no different from KCP in terms of what his role is on the offense. He is a corner, he gets to the corners, and every now and then he'll catch a dribble handoff and have 
three seconds to make something of it or make a quick pass. And I think that's all he is. But that's all they need from him. Aaron Gordon, to me, and people are always surprised when I say this, Aaron Gordon is the third, third man in their offense. You know, KCP and MPJ are the release valves. That's the pressure. That's the spacing. Aaron Gordon is the one that is involved in a lot of the actions that require a third person. And in large part because, obviously, there's physical and, and, and skill set reasons for that. But also, I just think he reads the court a lot better. He's, a, he's always been a clever, a more clever player than people gave him credit for, in part because he spent the first five years of his career trying to be a player that he could not be and was never going to be. But when you put him in the flow of an offense that's already got the defense scrambling a little bit, he's a very clever player, and he's a screen setter for Jokic, which puts their worst shooter right into the center of the action, which is good for their spacing. I don't even think that's a – I think you're probably spot on about that. I want to dig into the Clippers matchup a little bit because we zoomed by that. You know, the bubble is a landmark event for both this Nuggets team and this Clippers team, although almost nobody is left from that Clippers team. Um, obviously, Nuggets come back from 3-1, embarrass the Clippers, go on to give the Lakers a nice run in the conference finals. And then injuries derail them, they get their team back, they win the title. Clippers have more or less been, when healthy, an elite team ever since that moment. Cracked the conference finals, never got any further. Now they have Harden. It's a totally different team. And I believe they've only played once this year with Harden on the team. Um, Aaron Gordon was brought to Denver almost like to exactly for this matchup to guard Kawhi Leonard. And he does it very, very well. Then you got to still guard Paul George and James Harden. KCP will guard one of them. The other one's a little bit of a tougher matchup for the Nuggets. Um, and yet something about the Clippers has never stressed. They, the Denver has never really seen that stressed about it. And it could just be because at the end of the day, Jokic is going to put Zubats into foul trouble and he's going to own the game and control the game from inside out. But this is a different team with different personnel and a third perimeter star now that's going to stress Murray more on defense. They're going to go after him now and then. I want you to, like, what have you seen? And they can put size on Murray too, even if it's just Terrence Mann. He's kind of a big rangy guy. Sometimes PG will take him, whatever. How has that matchup changed to you? So the interesting thing about this matchup, I'm glad you brought up the Aaron Gordon point because I actually think Aaron Gordon is as good of a Kawhi Leonard defender as there is in the NBA. He's he might be the very best guy. And so I think that works really well in Denver's direction, especially when you get to the clutch. I, I think that the Clippers, to me, are a team that has or will have an identity crisis in the playoffs a little bit. Because to beat Denver, I think the most important player is James Harden. And in every other series, the most important player is Kawhi Leonard. It's almost always going to be Kawhi Leonard. Leaning into James Harden, you're going to get a spread pick and roll. You're going to play them out. You're going to try to draw Jokic out and do some different things with, you know, James Harden's very, very good attacking Denver. And I just wonder, that that would be my concern, is I think if Denver, especially if Denver gets up in a series, to me, you're going to, in a fourth quarter, you're probably going to go to Kawhi Leonard because he's your guy. That's, that's who you play through. You always go through him when the going gets tough. You get to the elbow and you let him ISO. And I think Denver will take that matchup. They'll say he's going to hit some tough shots, but Aaron Gordon's going to guard him. I think to beat Denver, what you're going to have to do is say, James Harden, we're giving you the ball. We want you to spread them out. And we're almost going to have to use, you know, Aaron Gordon, get out of there. Get, you know, or, or uh, Kawhi Leonard, get out of there. Drag Aaron Gordon with you. And let's see if Jokic can guard with KCP and Michael Porter and Jamal Murray as the low men, you know, coming over to help. I just don't think they'll do that. I think it's very difficult for a team to go away from what is their best and, and all season has been their bread and butter and to say we're leaning into something different this year, especially 
when it's that guy, James Harden, and to a lesser extent, Paul George. Those guys, I think, do carry a little bit of playoff baggage to them in a way that Kawhi doesn't. So you're asking a team to go away from their identity in the exact direction that seems the most, oh, here we go again. James Harden has so much playoff baggage that he has to check like nine bags before he's the guy in the line in front of you to check the bags. You're like, how, where are you going? How long are you? How many golf club he's bags do you have? <laughs> um, it's also like you mentioned hard, the Harden pick and roll against Jokic. You know, how, how funky do you start getting with matchups? Do you try to put Jokic on Terrence Mann? Well, Terrence Mann's actually a good role guy too. Do you yeah. put Jokic on Russ at points in the game? And the Clippers more than – any team in the West, probably. The Suns are are in the conversation too, but it's it they feel less comfortable doing it. Ty Lue loves to go five out. Now he doesn't like to do it as much anymore as he used to. And and I just don't know that they have they have a very powerful five out lineup. You put their three stars plus Norm plus Man out there or whatever. If you four good shooters and Terrence Man is okay. I just there's still a place for Nicola to live defensively in almost all iterations of that lineup, whether it's Mann or Russ or whoever. And I just don't know that you can guard the Nuggets that way. And maybe you, maybe you, obviously you just want to outscore them. That's that's a tough that's a tough that's a tough battle. They tried it earlier this season. They, they, it was a very interesting game for that exact reason. As you got to the clutch, it was close enough, and they tried to go small, and it was a, a it was a massacre. I mean, Denver scored every time, and they didn't just score in a way where you're like, oh, well, they made their shots this time. They made they they scored in the way where you're like, that's not viable unless we shoot 100% and we just get threes out of it. So I think th- I don't think they can go small. I think they're going to have to play big. And look, Zubats guards Jokic pretty well. I think surprisingly well. Plumlee is Zubats is a massively underrated defender who's big and strong with good instincts at the rim. Um, now you put him in space, it gets a little more difficult, but Jokic is just, he's the ultimate problem solver. Like any, he just figures everybody out, but yeah, zoo is done. And zoo is like met him at the summit at the basket now and then and blocked his shot. Like zoo does a good job against him and knows him. Well, I think there is a familiarity there just between those guys knowing each other and have been playing against each other for, for, you know, even longer than just the NBA. So there's that, um, and they have the bodies. I do think I don't think this is a slam dunk series by any means. I'm not trying to make it sound like Denver should not be concerned about the Clippers. I just think there's a little bit. I, I think that the Clippers would have to do the. It's always tough when a team can't do the thing they most want to do in a playoff series to win, and some teams have proven to be able to do that. I'm not sure that that collection of players. I know it's not this team because this team is brand new, but I'm not sure that collection of players has ever proven to be able to do that. To say, okay, well, we have to do it the ugly way. Uh, and go through it. And then lastly, they do remind me a lot of the Suns in one way. They both are teams that I think, it, it goes along with my previous point, they're teams that I think, I don't want to say front runners, that sounds too harsh and hot takey, but I think that they are more comfortable being ahead and more comfortable being comfortable. And Denver's going to make you uncomfortable. I think the Miami Heat and Denver Nuggets were the two teams that were best at making you uncomfortable last year, and it was a large part of why they both went to the finals. Denver would make them as uncomfortable as any team i think in the west and i just question if whether both phoenix and and the clippers i i think both of them are going to have to prove that they're capable of overcoming well i i've referred to harden as a front runner before um i don't think that's like in his dna it's like what he is but at times he has been like when those step back threes are rolling and the rockets were ahead back in the day he's talking all sorts of crap to the crowd he's whatever and then like Stuff gets gritty and nasty in the playoffs, and it's like, where's James Harden? Like, where is he? Is he on the floor? And well, that's almost it's every, almost every year. 
Now, well, like if the right shot is a sidestep, step back three, that might be the right shot given the moment. But that shot's easy when you're up seven. It's really tough when you're down three and there's one minute left and it's, hey, this is what they're giving me. I have to go to it. It doesn't feel right. Look, um, Denver last year got Minnesota without Jada McDaniels, who punched the wall, and without Nas Reed. They got the Suns, you know, and the Suns played them full blast as long as they could, and then Denver blasted them hell, the hell out of orbit in game six in Phoenix. And they got the Lakers, who were a playing team, and they swept them. And I don't care who they played or what they played. I don't really, I don't really care. I don't, didn't care about who faced who and what. Your path is your path, and they demolished it. Almost no matter what, the path is going to be harder this year, starting in the first round. Like, the first round, you could get a fully healthy Dallas team, or maybe you get, you know, the Kings who are kind of eh this year with a barely positive point differential. But from there, if people are healthy, the road is going to be harder. I just keep coming back to this. The road's also going to be harder for Minnesota, who's never won a playoff series together. For Oklahoma City, who's never won a playoff series together. For the Clippers, who have had a checkered five years of the Paul George, Kawhi Leonard era for Luka and the Mavs for Ed pick a team. And I just trust Denver to navigate a tougher playoffs playoff path more than any other team. It's close. It's not a slam dunk for me this year to say, oh, I'm going all in with Denver coming out of the West. But my finals pick was Boston over Denver. And I'm sticking with that. And I haven't really seen, you know, again, Denver's middling along. You look at their, their numbers like, Oh, net ratings kind of eh. same thing last year. This is a yeah. playoff team. They know how to play. They're still my pick to come out of the West. But these next five games are going to be interesting. I, I opened up by saying, you know, sack Miami at home. You expect them to win those games. Well, let's see. Like, those teams are hungry, and they're playing pretty well right now, particularly Miami. And they're playing for something. The Lakers, it's urgent every game now. Phoenix, it's urgent every game now. Like, talk about a team you don't want to see in the eighth seed or whatever. And Boston is Boston. Um, we, you know, they went into Boston and won the first game, a game that was just an awesome, awesome, awesome regular season game. I'm, I'm interested to see how they do, but, but they're still my favorites to come out of the West. Last year, if you recall, Denver came out of the all-star break with a bunch of these type of games. There's like four or five of them that they, they were, Memphis was in there with, of course, when Memphis was, was at the top of the conference, they had a bunch of really tough games and they came out and they blasted everyone. And it, it was a blessing and a curse because I think they built like an eight game you know, lead in the West. And then they coasted the last month of the season. They can't coast this year, but I do. I am so curious to see if they look as good over this stretch as they did last year coming out of the all-star break when it was very clear that they weren't just trying to send a message. I think they were legitimately also looking at themselves saying, can we do this? Or, you know, let's see what our best is. I think they're going to do that this week. You just mentioned the full slate. It's a great slate of games. I think we'll we'll know a lot more about what this team is uh, by the end of. I think it all wraps up next Thursday. So between now and next Thursday, I think we'll get a really good read on just how good this team is. Well, how good they are and how much they care. Like it, now, if they go zero and five or one and four and they lose a couple double digit games, I'll be like, uh, that's a little yeah. a little worrisome. Like even a couple weeks ago, I was like, uh, they're kind of limping into the All Star break, but um, we'll see. All right, Adam Mars, DNVR Sports, the All NBA podcast with some guy named Tim Legger. I don't know where you found this guy. Off the street, just guys, just any guy with an iPad could just come on the All NBA podcast with Adam Morris. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, it's a lot of basketball knowledge between two very smart people. Thank you for your time, and who knows, we may uh, meet up at the DNVR Sports Bar in downtown Denver uh, again this year, which was a great time last year. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much. I hope so. All right. 
I want to talk about the East play-in race today, which is getting a little frothy, and there's no one better to bounce around the Atlantas and Torontos, and oh my god, Brooklyn. Brooklyn is still playing in the NBA currently. They benched Ben Simmons last night, breaking up the completely unwatchable Ben Simmons-Nick Claxton pairing, and you know, Miami, Atlanta, Nikias Duncan, this is your this is your this is your wheelhouse mediocre East teams. I just can't think of anybody better from the dunker spot, old man in the three with JJ Redick and increasingly cantankerous JJ Redick, actually. Nikias, how are you, sir? Uh, I am doing pretty well. The tagline of me being the best person to talk about mediocre East teams, I don't know if that is a compliment or if I should be offended, but I am excited and ready to talk about some of these teams. No, because everyone with a pulse can talk about the Warriors and the Lakers and the Thunder. It takes some real grind to be able to talk about how's Pascal Siakam fitting with Indiana. So basically, like, here's where we are. Kind of a fun night in the East play-in race, which is, it's really a two-tiered race. The Knicks get that win over the Pistons, and... um. Dante DiVincenzo with just a straight-up quarterback sack on Asar Thompson, not called. Pistons get screwed again in their view. They're lucky they have eight wins, by the way. They're up to eight. They should be safe for not being the worst team in NBA history. If they were at, like, five wins right now, I think Monty Williams might have flipped the table after saying, where's the New York media at now? Closest Monty Williams will ever get to a, a sarcastic one-liner. Knicks need, the, need, Knicks need to scrounge every win they can get with three-fifths of their starting lineup hurt. Sixers badly need to scrounge every win they can get with Embiid hurt and half their team in and out of the lineup. We have a five-team race right now, kind of a legit five-team race for spots four, which is currently the Knicks, five, which is currently the Sixers, and six, which is currently the Heat after the most Heat win possible last (laughs) night with a complete mash unit. Four starters were out, maybe three, depending on who actually will start in their fully healthy starting five, and they go on the road and they beat the Kings. The Knicks are 35-23. and 23. The Magic, who are eighth, are 32-26, and 26, with the easiest remaining schedule left in the entire NBA by a lot, and six road games already enhanced. They have six additional home games coming up. That's a legit five-team race for spots four, five, and six that did not look like, and I forgot the Pacers, who are you know one game up on the Magic in the win column, for, for three spots. And then you go down to like the sad slap fight for spots nine and 10, which is currently Chicago and Atlanta now without Trey Young. They've got to navigate life without Trey Young. Brooklyn still plays NBA basketball, apparently. And the Toronto Raptors, who went into Indiana last night and had themselves a little post game pizza party for go. their first three game win streak of the season. Kind of getting interesting with this new team now that all the pieces are back healthy. R.J. Barrett's back. Gary Trent in the starting five. Kelly Olynyk, Ochai Ogbaji finding their rhythm off the bench. Grady Dick is happening. They're only, I can't believe I'm saying this about the 22 and 36 Toronto Raptors. <laughs> They're only three and a half games out of the play in uh, the 10th spot in the depressing race. Nikias, this is this is kind of getting fun in, in uh, the Eastern Conference, huh? Yeah, it's actually getting fun for me. And like you look at the West and all of those teams seem to be varying degrees of good. And like there are obviously tight races there. The East, it's kind of easy to push to the side just because of how blessed some of these teams have been during some of these recent stretches. But it is starting to heat up. Like the four through eight race is fun. I'm gonna have I'm going to be one of like eight people that's gonna have fun with the nine through like eleven race to see what happens with Atlanta. Eight, eight might eight might be high. It might that might be overestimating. <laughs> 
I, I was trying to factor in at least some I of the fans. By the way, and that, and, and that eight does not it includes zero Chicago Bulls fans who are not enjoying any of this at all <laughs> and would rather be eight and forty nine like the Detroit Pistons. I think. Yeah, at least they're getting some solace in what the Kobe White season has been. Ayo Desumbu shooting over 50% from three since the beginning of the year. So, like, that part's been fun. So, like, they have some bright spots. But to your overall point, I don't think they want to be in the play-in race. They've been ready for a rebuild for a while. But You know what my favorite it, part of a, um, a – uh, so the Knicks have been on the wrong end and now the right end of immediately referees admitting, oops, we screwed that one up, sorry – um, my favorite part of this, so I didn't watch the Knicks-Pistons game last night. It was not one of the games I watched. So I go watch the highlights of the game on NBA.com. On NBA.com. <clears throat> and one of my favorite things to do is when I know there's a controversial call, I want to see how blatantly NBA.com's official highlight package just doesn't mention it at all. And this, mm-hmm. for the second time with it, the first time when Jalen Brunson did not foul Aaron Holiday, they just were like, the NBA.com highlight was, here's another look at the replay. And last night it was like wild sequence to end the game. No mention of like <laughs> the official review, the pool report, nothing. Um, great work by NBA.com putting out some referee propaganda. Where do you want to start? You want to start with Miami, eight and ten, eight and two in their last ten games. Where do you want to start here? Actually, yeah, we we can start with the Miami Heat because, buddy, what a team this has been all year long. I feel like I am a month removed from going on a mini Heat rant on the dunker spot. Like, what's happening with this team? What's going on with the offense? The defense has just been a little rickety or more rickety than anticipated. Uh, They haven't been able to keep the ball in front. Like, I've cited the drive stat for Miami a few times throughout the season. And then you get to February and you get to the post-All-Star break stretch. And I think they had the fifth best defense in the league since February 1st. The offense during this win streak has a 122 offensive rating per clean the glass. And it's not like they're getting the ridiculous, they're shooting 48% from three or anything crazy there. Like, there's nothing that's been super inflammatory. It has just been Bam Adebayo being really freaking good, having the mid-range jumper going again after a super cold stretch in, like, December, mid-January. Mid-range jumpers going, getting downhill. Some of the finishes from that game last night were incredible from Bam. And the passing work. The passing work has been incredibly fun. Uh, if you've watched Heat games, you already know he does a lot of the dribble handoff stuff, a lot of the delay actions running into the early offense, going side to side and into their shooters. He's picking out cutters to a degree to which it's not necessarily new for Bam, but like at this volume, I think he had seven assists last night, but to this volume, it's been impressive. And to do it with this unit, as you mentioned at the top, they've missed a whole lot of guys uh, via suspension. Jimmy Butler out. Uh, Nikola Jovic, who's kind of been fun uh, during his recent stretch outside of, you know, the whole getting suspended thing. Um, But missing a whole lot of pieces and Bam still able to kind of put that unit on his back, made some crucial plays late in the fourth quarter there. They're starting to get back into, they're starting to get back into rhythm. Like Jimmy Butler gave the warning after the New Orleans thing. Like it's that time of year. Uh, So we'll see what that looks like when he's back, I think later tonight as we record. But the Heat are starting to look frisky on both ends of the floor. The cutting is popping. The actual spacing within the offense, which is something that I haven't really enjoyed for most of the year. Like, you can talk about the shooting concerns, but sometimes you got guys just cutting on top of each other when they're trying to empty aside the timings off of what the primary action is. Like, that part of the program is starting to feel better for Miami. And when you have Bam playing like this, when you have an actually aggressive Jimmy Butler, you have Duncan Robinson doing a little bit of everything on and off the ball. Jaime Hockey is starting to look a little bit better. They're looking frisky again. They're looking like the team that nobody wants to see in the playoffs again. They they do this every year. I, I, I always tell people, never count out the Heat. Never take the Heat lightly. Heat culture is a real thing. 
and they are eight and two in their last ten games. Last night, no Butler, no Hero, no Rozier, who like was on the team for five seconds, played well in almost none of the games that he played, or at least shot well in almost none of the games that he played. Uh, you mentioned Jovic, Josh Richardson is also hurt. Thomas Bryant, who jumped off the bench in that New Orleans kerfuffle and was on his toes like running to the scorer's table, hopping on from toe-to-toe like a boxer, ready to go. And then Jose Alvarado was like, oh, I see another guy ready to go. Let's almost spill into the crowd. David Stern, whoo, he would he would not have enjoyed that scene. Um, and they found the defense Thomas Bryant's played this year. Oh, he has not played very much. And the Heat find a way to squeeze out that game. Bam. Look, sometimes it's as simple as how many of the little 12-foot jumpers, spinning, pivoting things go in. But he's been outstanding. We talked off air two really nice, maybe the two of the nicest left-handed finishes I've ever seen from Bam last night. One on a floater, one on a jump hook out of the post. And I want to give a couple of other guys some love. You mentioned Hakez. He was the second most important player on the Heat in that game last night. And he looks all the way back to the spinning, twisting, bully ball. How is that going in? But it's always going in kind of stuff. And they were straight up picking on Kevin Herter last night with Jaime mm-hmm. Hakez Jr. Like, they can do that. They would have Duncan Robinson instead of back screen for Hakez get the switch and be like, go to work, man. Carry us. We are wheezing down the stretch. Carry us to the finish line. Manufacture a couple buckets in the mud. Spo actually used the phrase in the mud after the first quarter of the game. So we need to get the, the game in the mud more. Spo loves the mud. I wonder if Spo has, like, a mud pit in his backyard <laughs> in wherever he lives in Miami. And Kevin Love, look, he's old, can't jump, really relying on three-point shots. Last night, he decided to get mean and nasty again and deep-seal mismatches and bully ball people and just run over people in transition and draw fouls. He, he's he been dependable for them. Like, he's a dependable backup big guy for them. This team is tough as And look, they have the second-easiest schedule in the league behind Orlando for the rest of the season. They are currently in sixth. There's a world where you mentioned nobody wants to play them. We kind of penciled them in, borderline erasable pen them into the play-in tournament. There's a world where they get to fourth or fifth, and they're a problem for like a team that has legit long-running playoff ambitions. Like this team is is and they, again, Jimmy had already start to pop before he issued the warning. I actually would like to ask you this. There's an interesting conversation to have about what the Heat's starting lineup should be when they all get healthy to the point that the only ones I'm sure should be in it are Bam and Jimmy, who have only played 29 games together out of 59, by the way. That should terrify the rest of the league. And you got to have one of Martin or Hawkes in the starting five. That's three. There's an interesting conversation to be had about who the next two should be whether one should be Duncan Robinson, whether one should, whether one of Hero or Rozier should actually be coming off the bench for this team. What do you think this team looks like fully optimized? This has been the Heat Twitter question of the year or the past two seasons. What exactly do we do with Tyler Hero, who's very obviously talented, but also you look at some of the lineup data with what he does with Jimmy and Bam on the floor with him, and that's been especially wonky this year. And just the general fit, what's his usage going to be like? Honestly... Hopefully this isn't bad podcast, but honestly, I don't know. Like I've gone back and forth with this myself. Like Terry Rozier, to your point earlier, he hasn't really had a chance to gather rhythm with this team. 
And it feels like as he was getting there, he got hurt and he's just been out for a little bit now. Uh, Steve and I were making the jokes about all the weak side screens that he was setting when he first got there, very much just not trying to step on toes. So, like, I do think what Rogier provides as a guy that can get downhill without a screen should be important for this team. And I do think there are defensive question marks with him and Hero together, but there are also defensive question marks with Hero and Robinson together or Rogier and Robinson together. So it really just kind of comes down to, okay, what kind of offense do you want to run exactly? What type of space do you want to carve out? Or just, I guess to put it another way, how exactly do you want to help Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo? Do you prioritize getting as much space around those two as possible? Or do you go with the options that, in theory, can unlock both of those guys as screeners so they don't see the amount of switches that they do? And so, like, to the latter port, that probably leans more towards a hero being a starter there, just where you get the blend of both. Um, and if you do want to just give Terry Rozier the ball and not have to worry about how he's trying to fit himself in within the flow, it might be an easier sale to get Rozier off the bench since he's coming from Charlotte. He hasn't been there. Do is Miami actually tried the hero Robinson uh, backcourt duel with any amount of volume? Like it's probably worth a shot at the very least. Because if you can get that pick and roll uh, dynamicism with hero and Robinson, both of those guys can flow off the ball. Both of those guys can space. If you can get enough from them defensively and like quiet as kept again, Miami's defense has been pretty darn good since the beginning of the month. They're playing a lot more zone now. So for always fun when Spo gets back into that bag. If you can figure out the defense part, like maybe it is Hero and Robinson. And you bring Rozier, you bring Jaime Jaquez off the bench so you can kind of solidify things with that second unit. You start Caleb Martin, who, as you were talking about some of the unsung heroes of last night, Caleb Martin was incredible in that Kings game. If he's back to form on both ends of the floor, you get the drives, the shot, which quietly doesn't have as much of a hitch as it did the last couple of years. So I'm curious to see like where that where that ends up landing. Uh, I don't know if he's going to replicate what he did in the Eastern Conference Finals last year, but if he can actually shoot, that gets fun. I think the best thing you can say about this is that Miami does have options here. Like It's not an awful problem to have, but I'd probably at least give Hero and Robinson the shot and see what it looks like when everyone's healthy. It's an interesting conversation to have and interesting to think about because on the one hand, you're right, Rozier had no shot to develop any rhythm because not only has he been hurt pretty quickly into his heat tenure, but guys were in and out of the lineup around him. And I liked when they would have Rozier on one wing and Hero on another. They could attack kind of both diagonals that way. But it's it's an interesting conversation. But everything you just said about all these dudes, we didn't mention Josh Richardson. We didn't mention Haywood Highsmith who came in and gave them big minutes last night. It's just so interesting to go back and think about. I don't think they have a lot of Damian Lillard regret there. And I don't think they had any Damian Lillard regret almost from day one because they had confidence in their depth. They had confidence in what they had in Hawkeyes. I mean, people in their front office and their coaching staff were telling me in September, this dude might be playing 30 to 35 minutes a game for us by the end of the season. And they have the right kind of depth around their best players. Are they a little short of like a a minus a plus whatever shot creation sure but like dame hasn't really been providing that in milwaukee and whatever chemistry hiccups he's experienced there with another great player in Giannis. i mean i don't know why he wouldn't have the same issues going to a new place in miami and and i don't i'm not worried about dame dame is dame but like the heat are tough and look i said this earlier in the season before they hit that trough that you mentioned december january they're not scared of like any of these teams in their path. They're not but first of all, they're not scared of anyone. They're, like they would tell you they're not even scared of Boston who's 45 and 12 and just lapping the field everywhere. Philadelphia, not scared of them. They beat them in the playoffs. Knicks, different Knicks team, 
I think the Knicks might actually be the second best team in the East if they're fully healthy, but they're not. Heat beat them in the playoffs last year. Milwaukee, the Heat beat them in the playoffs last year and have beaten them in the playoffs twice. Cleveland, respectfully, hasn't won a playoff series. I think they're awesome. Like, I don't know, man. Heat are tough. Um, and by the way, I know you wanted to talk about Charlotte. The only Charlotte allowance I would give you is that you mentioned Caleb Martin. Martin twin powers have been activated. Cody Martin is back in Charlotte and is a big reason why this team, I believe, is undefeated since acquiring Trey Mann and Graham. Have they lost yet? I don't think they've lost yet, have they? Yeah, they've, they've lost one against Golden one. State. And that's where you got the, the Grant Williams. Oh, that's right, the Curry, the Curry reunion game. All, all that good stuff at the end of that game. But It was a loss. Yeah. So it was like 97-84 or something, right? Dude, like Fair. neither team cracked 100. I was like, is this a typo? Yeah, it was very funny, like, roaming Twitter and saying, oh, no, Charlotte's down 14, then going to the NBA app and seeing that it's 43-29. It's like, oh, nobody's scoring right now. That's going to be fun. But uh, shout out to Charlotte's defense. I'll sprinkle that in since I can't do the full Charlotte bit today. I'll give you 30 seconds to tell me why Charlotte's defense <laughs> is better. That's all you get, and I will create a buzzer here. Because I do, they look, they've, been, they've been fun. Trey Mann's been fun. And, like, they they have been winning. So tell me, tell me what's going on with Charlotte's defense. I would say with the starting unit, they are playing pretty aggressively. There's a collective size that they have. They don't really play small players in the rotation outside of Seth Curry, who has missed a couple of games at this point. Uh, bringing Nick Richards up to the level. There's a lot of pressure that they're putting on teams. And then you get to the second unit, very switch-heavy group with Grant Williams uh, leading, thing, leading the charge there. Um, and then they are just doubling all over the place. Like it's two on the ball and pick and roll, and then you check out their double teams. They're doubling from one pass away, and they're doing a really good job splitting behind that. They're forcing turnovers. Cody Martin's been super active. Brandon Miller's been fun on the weak side. Very good a defender already, Brandon Miller, not even just rookie good, so that part's been fun. There's the quick elevator pitch. If you want more, check out the latest episode of Dunker Spot. Boom. There you go. That was great. And you got a promo in at the end. Brandon Miller is a stud. Um, and they had a very good trade deadline. This is an organization to watch. Um, the markets are not remotely similar, but I used to talk about Phoenix. You know, Bill Simmons and I used to have a running bit of like, if we could pick one team to just take over, first of all, we would be horrible and ruin the team <laughs> within two years, we would be fired. But we always wanted Phoenix because we felt it was like a sleeping giant in terms of its market appeal to NBA players and and just everything about it. Charlotte kind of reminds me of the is is like my Eastern Conference version of that. Not that Charlotte is like this dream beach, you know, hot climate all that, but it's a nice climate. Players like it. Players who have gone there have liked living there. It's a basketball hotbed, obviously college basketball more than the NBA. Um that team when it's popular dating to the 90s when it came into the league and had the cool jerseys and stuff, like it kind of pops there. Um Anyway, that's my Charlotte elevator pitch. Um, let's talk about go down in the standings. Uh, right behind the Heat are the 33 and 26 Indiana Pacers who lost to the Raptors last night at home. Quiet game for Tyrese Halliburton. What have you seen from the early returns on Pascal Siakam, who obviously got traded from their opponent last night, Toronto, to Indiana? He's only played 13 games with Halliburton. They are plus 20 in 308 minutes together. The Turner, Halliburton, Siakam trio is plus 17 total points in 243 minutes together. So good, but not amazing. Stylistically, what have you liked or not liked? Um, I think the biggest thing for me is like just trying to bank in. The sample just isn't super large for Pascal Indiana yet. In more particular, like him and Tyrese Halliburton together since Tyrese has missed the time, Pascal's missed some time. Then you get the all-star break and all that good stuff. So, like, I'm trying to give a little bit of grace in terms of the chemistry building. But, like, just looking at their two-man uh, pairing and pick and roll, 
it's been a lot more switching than I anticipated. And that kind of sent me down my own little rabbit hole. Like, has Tyrese gotten so good that he's kind of not that he's directly limiting the opportunities that they have, but because he's now seeing bigger defenders and seeing more pressure, the Halliburton Siakam pick and roll has been switched more than I anticipated. I think it's a little bit over 40% per second spectrum. And it's like, what are the openings there? Like Pascal, if he gets a small guy on him, he'll still draw double teams. He's still a good passer. So it's been fun to watch him operate in that level. And even when Tyrese is one pass away, it's just the level of space that Pascal has had that I don't think he's gotten used to uh, with the Toronto stint. So like seeing him attack those openings and seeing the passing pop a little bit more has been a lot of fun for me. But I'm more interested in seeing like how they continue to build a boat around those two. What kind of things are they setting up? I think back to both of the Raptor matchups um, that they've had recently. And it felt like every time the Raptor said, let's put more size on Pascal, let's put Yaka Pertle on Pascal, things just opened up immediately. Let's empty a side, let's get two to the ball, let's get Pascal in the short roll. Or let's now combine Pascal and Miles Turner together. Let's get them screening for each other before flowing into a pick and roll. Y'all got two on the ball. We're able to play out of that more. So, like, you can see the seeds of what that partnership is going to look like. Again, Tyree's incredible score at this point. We know what the passing is, what kind of space he can provide. We know what kind of score and initiator and passer that Pascal can be. So, like, the fit stylistically, I think, is going to get there. It's just the usage for me. And then even looking at the Pascal and Miles Turner partnership, like, they haven't screened for each other a lot. And I was wondering at what point does Rick Carlisle tap into that bag, even if it's just like Ram screen. We'll have Miles Turner screen for Pascal as he lifts up and then flows into the pick and roll with Tyrese Halliburton. Do they get into that stuff to kind of get some big, the big switching and then flow into the pick and roll? Is that another way for them to generate two on the ball? Um, But I've enjoyed that portion of it. Defensively, Pascal's been fine to me and kind of like the opposite of the switch point offensively. I felt like he would be switching more in Indiana than we've seen so far. Like it's something that the great Caitlin Cooper has pointed out. On her feed, like they got Pascal chasing guys off ball and navigating screens. Like that part's interesting to me. So I want to see like what his defensive role ends up stabilizing as. But overall, I think it's been a positive. You can already see the seeds on both ends of what kind of impact he can have. I like it. And it's been uneven because of guys being in and out of the lineup because of the all-star break. I do think they're adjusting to both Buddy Heald being away from being not on the team anymore. They miss his shooting. And Aaron Neesmith has been hurt a little bit lately, so they don't quite, you know, they're trying to figure out a new starting five with Nebhard, who I love. Uh, but that lineup hasn't worked very well. Um, and Halliburton has been, by his standards, a little bit out of rhythm in the last two or three weeks. Like, we haven't had a lot of Halliburton games where he just looks like he has the feel for, not the feel, but just he has the game in the palm of his hand. It hasn't felt like that, including last night, where maybe part of it is teams are switching more. And saying, like, we're just not going to give you the easy passes. We're going to make you be a scorer. And he's totally capable of that. That he's That's been the big reason for his leap is that you just can't play him like that anymore. I think Pascal, we can talk about tactically, should be switching more on defense. I think he's added the length and tenacity and just kind of, like, ability to guard different kinds of players and fill the gaps that they've needed. Offensively. You know, you mentioned a lot of teams toying, not even toying with it. Like, we're going to put our centers on Pascal and our fours on Miles Turner because we don't want to give Miles Turner open threes and we're not too worried about him posting up. I just, I think they have the solves for that strategy. And one of them you mentioned is you just go, oh, your center's on Pascal. You can't switch the Tyrese Pascal pick and roll anymore because you can't put your big dude on Tyrese freaking Halliburton and that step back three that just keeps stepping back further. He's going to start taking half court step back threes pretty soon. Um, and they go right into that with Miles Turner spacing the floor. 
Um, and Pascal is also just too fast for centers. Like he can face them up and get by them and get around them. And if you go the other way and your four is small, he can post them up and get, get you sort of, he can get Indiana's offense into that mid range territory that they don't use much and use it not to score necessarily, but to play make out of it or bully his way to the basket. I I think this fit is going to work. And I think ultimately, like you look at what they traded for Siakam, Bruce Brown, who just kind of hasn't found a sweet spot in either Indiana or Toronto, at least consistently. I think he's been a little better for Toronto, but some games he feels like, what, what is his place here? Uh, and three first-round picks, two of which will be, two of the three will be 2024 first-round picks that'll be toward the bottom half of the draft, the first round. Like, yeah. that's a good, that's a fair price for the Pacers. Like, I, I think that's a fine deal for them. If anything, it's slightly disappointing for Toronto that the draft equity doesn't appear to be what they that all that great. They didn't flip Bruce Brown. Now they have his player option decision. They could have cap space this summer. I like how this fit is going to look for Indiana. I want to see it when Neesmith comes back and if they go back to starting Neesmith. The shooting, when you have Siakam, Turner's only shooting 33% from three. Matherin, who had a heater last night, is at 38%, but teams don't really treat him like a shooter yeah. shooter. Um, that That's an interesting part of it, but uh, this is just another team who, if they can figure it out and get more reps together, like I, I think they'll be... You know, when they made this trade, everyone wanted to know, like, how good are the Pacers? Are they a top three team? Are they a top four team? I barely addressed that in my reaction podcast to it because... I just thought it was obvious that they weren't a top three team yet in the East, like a threat to really beat those teams. But the top three in the East has gotten a little murkier since then. Like the Cleveland did not look like a no-brainer top three team. I still mm-hmm. don't see the Pacers as like a threat to make the conference finals necessarily, but that's fine. That wasn't the point of this trade. The point of this trade was to set them up to be that kind of team in a year or two. I don't know. Am I wrong or am I underestimating the Pacers? Like I, the East is a little op- open-ish with all these injuries. Maybe they are a threat to make the conference finals. I don't know. It's open-ish. I can't quite get there. Like I reserved the right to change my mind in a month and a half now. If we do get the healthy Halliburton stretch, uh, Siakam stretch again, like Halliburton out and then on diminished restrictions. So that just kind of limits some things, but I think he's back to normal now. So if he regains that burst, like that could be a terrifying duo to face in a postseason setting that's just going to become a matchup deal. I don't know if I can get quite to, I don't think I can get the conference finals. Like if they went around, I wouldn't be super surprised depending on who they matched up with. But to your point, like this was the move to set up the other moves. And the fact that, you know, all the stuff comes up from Woj, like stars want to play with Tyrese Halliburton. Like I think that's, I want to play with Tyrese Halliburton (laughs) and I stink. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. But like the fact that that is kind of the vibe coming out of Indiana, like you've already won for the year. Like, naturally, you want to win all the basketball games that you can. But, like, big picture, you have your superstar in Tyrese Halliburton. You've acquired another star. You have a little bit of optionality moving forward with some of the assets that you have. Like, they can build this thing out. And so the fact they set themselves up right now, as long as they don't get flat out embarrassed in round one, or if they fall to the play-in, if they lose two play-in games, like, that will leave a sour taste. Absent of that, like, this is house money for Indiana. Especially considering, like, you alluded to it with losing Buddy Hield. Like, they do feel a movement shooter short. Like, getting Doug McDermott back around the trade deadline, I think, is helpful, but, like, he hasn't played that much. He hasn't shot that well so far. But, like, I do feel like they are a shooter short. Like, I made the switch point about Tyrese and Pascal very quickly. Like, we haven't seen Tyrese screen for Pascal that often either. He and set think- one ball screen last night for Nebhard early in the game where 
I just flagged it because the Buddy Heald ghost screen for Tyrese Halliburton was such a big part of their offense. Mm-hmm. And I, I flagged it because Tyrese, if he if he leaned into that a little bit more, and I, you don't want to take him off the ball too much, but he's such a dynamic player. He could give them five or six possessions where they run that scripted action for Nebhart or whoever has the ball. That it, it could be very dangerous. Yeah. Like, I think, to the chemistry point, like, there's just an adjustment period there, I think, with Tyrese as a screener. Because, like, a lot of the guard screen stuff, he receives a bunch of it because he has the ball in his hands. But even when he was doing the go stuff for Buddy or Andrew Nembhard, like, he's just tapping and getting out of there, which is fine. I think with Pascal, if you look at, like, what Kyle Lowry would do for him, what Fred VanVleet would do for him, it's ghost, but they're getting contact first and then slipping out of there. And, like, they at least have enough of the true hits to where when they do ghost, the defenders are off balance. I think with Tyrese, he's so used to just going straight with the blur screen. Like, that's probably just going to take a little bit. We're getting super grand. But fine. Um, like, I think that's going to take a little bit of, of chemistry building there. And I think once they get that, they'll lean into that a little bit more late game. They can create some advantages from there. But, yeah, they got they have obvious pathways to get better. And they're already good. And they're winning. Like, I, I again, I think this is a house money stretch for them. Let's talk about the Hawks, who are 25 and 32, clinging tenaciously to the 10th seed. Uh, three games up on the Nets. I'm writing off the Nets. I'm sorry, Nets. You, <laughs> That's it. Maybe it's bulletin board material. I'm writing you off. The Raptors, I, I kind of got to look at a little bit because they've won three in a row and they're starting to find a little bit of an identity with this new team that they have. They're three and a half, four out in the loss column of Atlanta, who their season series is 2-2, so it would default tiebreaker-wise to conference record. The Hawks will have that. Raptors' conference record is trash. Um, but they are missing Trey Young for the next month uh, with a finger injury. And their offense is basically built around everything Trey Young does with a, a, a rim runner like Clint Capella, who's back healthy. A Congo, who was playing the best basketball of his life when Capella was hurt, is now hurt and out indefinitely. So we're going to have to see some Bruno Fernando or more of what they've been doing is just playing playing Jalen Johnson Jaylen at center um, when Capella's out. Now, it's always the guy behind the guy, right? Like, if you look at their numbers, DeJounte Murray on the court, Trey Young off the court, they're now plus three per 100 possessions for the season, according to Cleaning Glass. You live with that. You sign up for that. It's now who is running the offense when DeJounte Murray is on the bench that starts to get you a little bit worried. But this team, look, Hunter's back, and I know you want to talk about Hunter. Um Bogdanovich has had a fantastic year for them and can spot start if need be and is did start the last game. The the, the Akongwu thing hurts and t- without Trey and Akongwu, it's two of their top six or seven guys that are out. I'm interested, but I'm interested to see how they play without Trey Young in both in style and in results. What are you going to be watching for? Because this is like it's like taking Luca out of Dallas. It's just everything is built around how this one dude plays and he's gone now for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, you already hit on it. Like, I think it's what is what are they going to look like with DeJounte off the floor? And what kind of staggering are they going to do? Do we just get Jalen Johnson leading his own unit now? Especially if he's just going to be your nominal backup five on top of that. Because, like, the Bruno minutes have been, we'll call them interesting to where, like, the screen, you see him set the initial screens. Like, okay, you can still create openings. That's cool. He'll dive. Okay, that's pretty good speed getting out of there. He's sucking in the defense. If you have a lift on the weak side, you got an opening there. And then you toss him the ball. And it's like, oh, is he going to catch this? What exactly is the vertical pop when he does get the ball? This is a little bit different. You and know, I also every want- time you t- every time you say Bruno, there's just there's a bad 
you wouldn't even get it. There's a bad dad joke like my soul is trying to force it out of my body and I'm pushing it back down. So please keep going. Maybe say <laughs> Fernando. Maybe say Fernando instead of Bruno and now my soul will forget that this joke is trying to come out of me. Got you. We, we, don't, we don't talk about that guy. Uh, but no, I, I think it's a little bit. Yes. <laughs> but no, it's just a little bit interesting what that's going to look like there. Because with Jalen at the five offensively, like even if it turns into a switch fest, like I trust him to be able to create openings. And if you are playing any kind of traditional coverage, like he's very good in the pocket. If you do put two on the ball, he's good in the short roll. Defensively is where it gets interesting. Because like I've liked some of the contests at the rim, but also you can tell like I don't really love seeing Jalen Johnson in drop. Like, that's very much not his bag, especially considering, like, he's been the four most of the year. Atlanta's been blitzing, picking rolls all over the place. He's sliding down, trying to challenge shots it's that way. It's funny, like, the the tweener – he's not a tweener forward. He's just a four now. But, like, even, like, the, the undersized center in drop, your footwork can be perfect. Your position can be perfect. You're just maybe not big. Like, when the Bucks put Bobby Portis in drop, it's it can oh. get it can get ugly for them. He's just not big enough to do it. Yeah, and with Bobby in particular, like, some of the – the depth of his drop and that I, I goes on a whole thing with Bobby and the drop. I just haven't wanted to see that in three years, but at any rate, like the Jalen at the five defensively is going to be interesting to track. And I think zooming out, and this is something that we talked about when I was on earlier in the year with Atlanta blitzing more pick and rolls than anyone. I wondered, would they reach a point that they just stopped doing that? Let's just go to more drop. Let's go to more switching. You obviously will miss Trey young offensively. And again, like I think the defensive effort for Trey, for the year has mostly been pretty good. Like there are just size limitations there, but like I haven't super minded the effort defensively. You remove him out of the rotation now for a month. Does Jante or Kobe Bufkin, if he actually plays, those are your smallest guys in the rotation now. And they're six five. Like Garrison Matthews, a sneaky six six, still not the biggest guy, but like you do have more leeway to lean into switching, which made the Sunday game against Orlando interesting to me. No Paolo because he was six. So that was going to take some of the must off of let's see if I can pick out some stuff in film, et cetera. But it is at least worth noting, Atlanta switched more pick and rolls in that game than in any other game they have this year. And I was like, I wonder, like part of that's just Orlando. They're a big team. It's easy to switch against them. They see a bunch of switches overall. But is that something that Atlanta's going to lean into now? Because their rotations have been a mess for most of the year. Like, I feel like that's the biggest part of why the defense has been as bad as it is. If you can eliminate that portion or at least limit some of the rotation that they have to make, let's just switch. Let's just keep the ball in front. We'll help when we can. Let's identify some non-shoes that we can be more aggressive off of. Let's get into some game plan stuff. But let's just switch and keep it simple. Are the Hawks the 19th best defense in the league over this next month stretch? That isn't good, but it's much better than what they've been so far this year. And if you get enough of the shot making from DeJounte, if you have Sadiq Bay finally making corner threes or continue to do so, if you get Bogdan knocking down shots, if Jalen Johnson is doing your short roll things, can you carve out enough offense to hold serve? I think a pathway is there for Atlanta to do so. Yeah, they should be able to – I mean, look, it you wouldn't hang a banner for it, but they should be able to hold off Toronto and Brooklyn for the 10th spot in the East. Um, and they should be able to push Chicago for the 9th spot in the East and home court advantage in the 9-10 showdown that nobody is looking forward to. Um, because I, I just think they have enough. Even with all these injuries, they have enough. What's What's disappointing is that – well, maybe it's not disappointing, but like th- these next two months, because I don't think either of us thinks Atlanta is doing anything real in the playoffs. Like the team just hasn't been good enough. And I wouldn't even pick them to get through the play. And now that could change. Who knows? Um, the next two months were more about let's dig in and see really that we didn't trade anybody at the deadline. 
we 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 know there's going to be noise about it in the offseason when the Lakers can throw more first-round picks at people in particular. Everybody can, really. All the contenders can. Let's see what this duo can actually do. Let's see if we can catch a rhythm with if we can get healthy and see what this team is, if it's more than just the 500 team that's been for basically three straight years. Um, and on the one hand, now we get a month of, of we don't get to see that duo, but we do get to see what does this team look like with DeJounte Murray and without Trey Young. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point, if you were building that team on purpose – you would get a backup point guard that's more experienced than Kobe Bufkin, better than Patty Mills, better than Trent Forrest. They don't have that right now. But it will be interesting to see how they fare. They should be better defensively. And I, I'm just I'm interested to see it. Um, let's qu- talk quickly about uh, the team that's chasing them in the three-legged race for, for this seed. The Raptors, uh, on a three-game winning streak, have totally remade their team. And it's always hard to get a feel for a team that trades such so many big pieces in the middle of a season. They actually made three meaningful trades. The Siakam trade we talked about, OGN and Obi for RJ Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, and the Detroit second round pick. This can be very valuable this coming offseason. And I thought one of the more interesting trades at the deadline that no one was that interested in other than the nerds like me. Um, one of the first round picks they got in the Siakam deal plus some fungible salary to the Jazz for Kelly Olenek and Ochai Abaji. Abaji's starting to play a little bit better for them, getting some baskets on cuts, playing good defense. Um, the starting lineup, which is now quickly Trent, Scotty Barnes, triple-double last night with five blocks, I think, RJ mm-hmm. Barrett, Jakob Pertl. That starting lineup is plus 12 per 100 possessions in only 135 minutes together, but for the second straight season – after acquiring Pirtle last season and now there's all these trades, they seem to have found a lineup that's actually good and is is working. Um, quickly and Barnes are still finding, like, you know, just like always with two lead ball handler types, you know, what's the chemistry going to be like? How can we amplify each other instead of playing your turn, my turn basketball? You've seen some pick and rolls, more pick and rolls between them, more Scotty Barnes pick and rolls with Emmanuel quickly screening for him, which is an action that I like and they should lean more into. That's just going to be a work in progress. That's what it is. Grady Dick is kind of starting to happen off the bench for them. Had a great game last night, has good chemistry with Olinick. This, there's something. This is not a fake little late season random three game win streak. I'm not saying Toronto's like good now, but there's something happening here where if enough things can kind of click into place, this team's at the very least like kind of interesting for the next 20 games. Yeah, like I've enjoyed them during this recent stretch. And like just monitoring Toronto all year long, my biggest thing has been what exactly is the balance going to be for me, like evaluation wise between what they're trying to get to and then also banking in the personnel is only going to allow for so much. And so we talked about it on the dunk spot earlier in the year. I like a lot of the things that Toronto is trying to run here. Defense are just going under or they're switching a whole bunch of stuff. So like it's getting flattened out eight seconds in and then they just kind of have to play out of that and it gets a little muggy from there. Because and of so, the lack of overall shooting that they had be- yeah. pre-trades, which the shooting is, is I mean, Barnes is shot at okay. Barrett, people are going to dare to shoot. It's it's a little better, but it's not like great. Yeah, still, yeah, still not where it needs to be. But like, it's general. Okay, what exactly are you trying to get to? What are the personnel limitations? How much of that can you control? Can you get into your actions quicker? What is the screening looking like, etc.? So like, that's something I've been monitoring with Scotty in particular. I know skill set wise, he should be a very good role partner. 
for a lot of guards, especially Emmanuel quickly, like how good of a screener is he is something that he's going to have to continue to grow with. But now you kind of look at this group post trades. You talked about the starting lineup and how good it's been. Like in theory, you have RJ Barry that can work second side. You have a pull-up threat or a guy that can just at least touch the paint in Emmanuel quickly. You have Jakob Pertle who will just hit people all over the place. And you can run some stuff through him at the elbow. And he can pick out cutters and things like that. And Scotty Barnes can do a little bit of everything. Gary Trent Jr. now starting. Like he can fly off a of pin downs, fly off of staggers, get shots going for you. And so you have an element of shooting and spacing and decision-making and screening that works. And then you get to the second unit where you have Kelly Olenek. You can replicate a lot of the same things with an added element of shooting. So when you get into like the pure second unit or like Scotty plus bench or Emmanuel quickly plus bench, look, virtually everyone can do something, execute a handoff, get a drop, get into drive a kick, run a pick and roll. You can kind of flow side to side in a way that was a little inconsistent to begin the year. And so now that you have this lineup and scheme synergy within like their top nine, and now you have Grady playing well and shooting well on top of that, it's easy to see, okay, this is the stuff they were trying to build early in the year. Now you have slightly better personnel. Again, not where it needs to be to be like a serious title threat or even win a playoff round threat right now. But you're starting to see this is what they were working towards. And this is what it can look like when they tap into that. And then you throw in this is a young team. This is a team that, you know, I think since the beginning of February or since the trades were made, no team has gotten out and transitioned more than Toronto. That's still going to be a big part of their calculus. But now that you can attack teams early and then you also have an idea of what you're trying to get to in the half court, it all just feels better. And so I don't know if that ends with them getting to 10 or getting to nine, being, you know, making serious noise in the play in or not. I just need to see more from that front. But I already feel better about their process and what they're building towards. It's amazing. You know, Grady Dick was playing for the 905 for a part of the season. It's amazing what one movement shooter can do for their offense and how good it looks. And like Gary Trent is kind of a movement shooter, but he he's a little more deliberate in his movement and will stop the ball more than Grady Dick will. Yeah. Like they're just running this play with Grady Dick where I think it'll be either quickly or Barnes who's ever in the game as the lead ball handler where Grady Dick will set a ball screen for that guy and a shooter setting a ball screen as we talked about is a dangerous thing. And then he'll sprint off a Kelly Olynyk screen. So you're pairing two shooters in an off ball screening action, a shooting center and a shooting guard. And you don't know where the hell Grady Dick is going to go out of that. He could cut to the rim. He could stop and take a pop for a three behind Kelly Olynyk. They're giving teams a lot of trouble with that. And he is moving his feet on defense better than I expected. Teams are going to test him and teams are going to pick on him. And there's certain matchups where he's just not going to be able to hang, but he's, he has good anticipation, which makes up for whatever lack of foot speed he might have. Like, he's been hanging in defensively. He's a good rebounder. He likes to get in and grab rebounds. The, I just – and Agbaji, look, every time he dribbles, it makes me a little bit nervous, but he's made some threes lately. He's a really good cutter, and he's just – his wingspan is enormous. I thought that was like a worthy buy low kind of reclamation second draft guy for them. I have no idea what any of this adds up to just absolutely zero, but I know that I'm like kind of more interested in watching the Toronto Raptors than I was two months ago. Yeah. Like I think they're right there again. That second unit has been a lot of fun. Like it's been cool seeing Kelly O'Leary just operate and wear a whole bunch of different hats offensively. You mentioned Oshai Abaji and the cuts and the shooting, like also him just randomly flying in for offensive rebounds has been kind of fun on top of that. Like Bruce Brown to your earlier point, he's starting to find a little bit more comfort there. I just love when Toronto inverts the offense with that second unit. And he's let hand, uh, Kelly handle up top. It may just be like a simple exchange. They may go to pure delay. They may go to pick and roll. They may go to pistol or whatever the case may be. 
But from there, the ball still finds Kelly Olynyk in the middle of the floor, and then here comes Oshai Abadji from the slot. Here comes Bruce Brown from the slot. And if you put two on the ball at any time against that second unit, especially when Scotty Barnes is handling things, the ball just pops so quickly. Like, that is the we process the four quickly lineup. Uh, no pun intended there. But they they do such a good job of moving the ball with the second unit. It's It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, there is um there is a lot of low-hanging last name pun jokes on the Toronto Raptors roster that some announcers in the league are having, I would say, a little too much fun with. Um, <laughs> these are their names. Respect their names. Um, but yeah, Toronto, um, fun. Uh, let's talk quickly about Orlando, who just kind of like... It feels like they're almost the least interesting of these teams because they didn't do anything meaningful at the trade deadline for the 95th consecutive. Actually, no, it's not the 95th consecutive season because their one teardown season has just totally reshaped their team via the Vucevic deal. Um, they still their backcourt rotation is still other than Suggs, who I just absolutely adore watching. Like you, if you're gonna throw a cross court pass and Jalen Suggs is in the game, you better take one extra look to see where the hell Jalen Suggs is because he's coming for that pass. And while he does play like a football player, you know, it's funny. He was a great football player. He has these pick sixes, and he had that, was it against the, I think it was in the Pistons game, that Bancaro won with the not really a travel, but was it really a travel? Are we sure it wasn't a travel? Um, He had the full court heave to Bancaro inbounds pass, like the Grant Hill inbounds pass, hit him in stride. I'm like, excuse me. I'm like, this dude is so fun to watch. But their guard rotation is still like, oh, there's Anthony Black for a lot of minutes. Okay. Is Jed Howard around? No. Um, Markel Fultz? But but look, they are what they are, which is a bad offense, 23rd in offense, extending my favorite niche streak in the entire NBA, I believe this will be their 12th or 13th consecutive season with an offense that's 20th or worse, barring a late-game surge. But their defense has stood the test of time. This is a legit, really good defensive team. They're fifth in points allowed per possession. They foul a lot. That's their only weakness, but they are number one in free throw rate on offense, so it all evens out in the wash. And they're good at everything else. They're enormous. And if he can just stop getting hurt, I heard Stan Van Gundy say on a national broadcast. Why the hell were they on national? Oh, because it was the Shaq jersey retirement game. Stan Van Gundy said it out loud. Jonathan Isaac per minute, and I realize being on the floor is part of being a good defensive player, might be the best defensive player in the NBA. And he said that, and I thought my brain has thought that, but I have not allowed my mouth to say it out loud. That's not a crazy statement. He's that good defensively. I just don't know what the future of this team is offensively, given their lack of shooting, given the skill overlap between their two best players, Bancaro and Franz Wagner, who are awesome. I And I don't even know what to pay attention to when I watch this team. Like, there's nothing that I'm like, there's no mystery that I that I want this roster to solve other than maybe the Isaac wild card. But what are you, what do you watch for with this team? And like, do they have a roadmap to a good NBA offense, or is this just a team that's going to have to at some point go all in trading for a guard who can shoot and dribble and pass? I think they're at, they're absolutely at a shooting de- uh, deficit. And like this is something that I've talked about uh, throughout the year with Orlando. Like I think there is a subtle difference between a good shooting team and a good spacing team. I just don't have questions, and this is a testament to Jamal Mosley, who's done a heck of a job this year. I don't have questions about how well Orlando can space the floor. 
they do a really good job when they're setting up actions for Paolo or setting up stuff for Franz. They'll clear the wing. They'll clear the entire side. They'll have a guy in the dunker spot. They, they'll they exchange on the weak side. They do a really good job of spacing around their guys. They just don't have enough shooting to punish it. And so I really wish, like, I'm, I'm aware of the offense uh, the offense streak with Orlando because of you and listening to your pod. And so, like, now it's something I've subconsciously tracked to. I do wish that, in general, they shot better. So you could really get the depths of how fun this Orlando offense can be, especially when they invert stuff for Paolo, invert stuff for Franz. Paolo is the point guard of the team. I mean, he's point forward, whatever you want to call him. He and Franz are the point guards of the team, basically. I mean, Fultz is just, he's been hurt. It just hasn't happened. just hasn't really happened. Yeah, it's been a very topsy-turvy year for Markel Fultz, which things because last year was a lot of fun when he got back on the court. But but no, like it's just continue to monitor the decision-making for Franz and for Paolo, for me, offensively. Like with Paolo in particular, because there was the fun stretch earlier in the year where he was taking and making threes, and he was taking some off the bounce. I was like, wait a minute, he's starting to do the thing. This is cool. And that's kind of gone down as the year has gone. So I do wonder like when he spaced away from Franz, what exactly is the decision-making tree there? It's funny, like I wanted to bring up DeAndre Hunter a little bit earlier in the Hawk section. Oh, I and I've been impressed. That. Yes, with, please do. Oh, no, you're good. But I was going to tie that in together. But like the big thing with DeAndre Hunter, aside from how healthy will he be, is when he catches the ball, how quickly is he making a decision? And that's been a bigger thing than what decision is making. It's, it's got to be faster. Yeah, catch but and shoot, catch and drive. Been. Yeah, so like that's been better for Atlanta. And I tie that back into Paolo to where when he spaced, my big thing with him is, okay, less what are you doing? How quickly are you going to do it? Will you comfortably take a catch and shoot three? Because there have been many possessions this year where he'll catch these wide open. It's a catch, stare at the defense, and now let me get into the ISO bag. Or catch, stare at the defense, rhythm dribble, now I'm going to take the three. And what should have been a catch and shoot turns into a pull-up. And it's just kind of continue to monitor how quickly is he making these decisions. Even if he's going to catch and drive, can he get into the teeth in the defense? Uh, we think the answer is a resounding yes on that part. He is just a monster getting downhill. He gets to the line a lot still. The passing has really popped for me this year. It popped last year, but like with this amount of volume, passing continues to pop for him. So that part's been fun. It's just watching Paolo off the ball. And then with Franz, like I think he can go a long way to helping, maybe not solve, but at least help the shooting portion because he just hasn't shot the well from three at a level that is up to his standard. Like I, I think he's just a much better shooter than he's shown. Like some of that is injury, but it's just been an off year for him. If he gets back to knocking down shots, I think the Paolo post-ups with Franz one pass away become even more deadly. If you want to send that double, like Franz isn't scared to shoot the ball off the catch. And you can just kind of kick it back out, flow in a two-man game from there. So, like, they have built-in uh, options, even with them being light size and seeing switches. They both get downhill so well, it almost doesn't matter. And so, like, I'm watching the offense, and then defensively, I really love watching this team fly around. Like, I think Jalen Suggs is a legit all-defense candidate. For them to maintain elite defense while Wendell was out and you just had the go-go stretch and you get Wendell back and it's a little wonky to start and now the defense remains good. Like, I do echo the Jonathan Isaac point. He is ridiculous defensively, but just not on the court. So, like, that's not going to matter for awards. And then even when he was on the court, like, it was, what, 13 to 15 minutes a night. So you can't even give him the Matisse Thibault. He's playing 22, so that's that's barely enough. And even that's controversial. We're not going to have that conversation today. conversation today. The defense is fun. I don't have questions about the defense. And then offensively, process-wise, or just how they space the floor, I think they will carve out room for their stars. Assuming they make the playoffs or get through the play-in at the very least, it's just going to be what will they knock down on catch-and-shoot jumpers? And I don't want to get super reductive there, but like if they have a hot if they have a hot stretch from three, they can absolutely win a series. The defense is going to take them to the dance. But that's kind of what I'm monitoring there. 
I just don't think their offense is good enough to do anything. Look, we have to see how the matchups shake out and if they are able to either get into the top six or if they're going to have to gut through the play-in tournament. I would not pick them to win any series right now with their offense in the state that it is, and that's fine. Like I think they're going to have to come to a crossroads at some point of we have all these draft picks, all these future assets. Like, Do we need to put some of them on the table finally and get a guard in here who can – loosen up our offense, run it some of the time, but not take too much away from what we have in Bancaro and Franz. And I, I agree with you. I think Franz's three will be fine. Like, I, I think he'll become a good three-point shooter again. Um, let's move west real quickly. I had Adam Mars on before you. We recorded actually last night in L.A. Uh, to talk about the Nuggets in the top of the west in the matchups there. Um, there were two teams I wanted to get your concerns about. Yep. Like, not concerns, but just your temperature take on um, that that Adam and I, one, we hit a little bit, one, we didn't hit a lot. But they actually, interestingly, have the almost exact same statistical profile. Uh, and for one of these two teams, this is the statistical profile to which all of us, like, if they get here, look out, and yet no one is really looking out for them. And the other one, it's slightly disappointing because they've hit a recent slump. But it's the Suns and the Clippers. Um, the Suns for the season are 7th in offense and 14th in defense. Now, 7th in offense is a little low given their talent, but when they have their big three together, they're blowing teams out of the water. They're plus 13 per 100 possessions, plus 117 total points in 440 minutes with Beal, Durant, Booker. So let's just say their real offensive ranking is like 4th. And mm-hmm. 14th in defense, we all said before the season, this can be an average defense, look out, and yet they're... Three and three in their last six games. Beal's hurt again. They are in a five-way tie. I'm sorry, a four-way tie in the loss column for fifth to eighth in the West. And obviously, seeding is going to be paramount. Hard team to figure out. Um, You know, I talked on my last episode about how I I thought there had been a kind of stagnation in Booker and Durant, like, working together on offense. It was too much your turn, my turn. I thought against the Lakers, their win the other day, they kind of corrected that and veered back in a healthy direction but just boil it down to me on phoenix like what what's 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 the number one thing you watch for like can they get better at this before the playoffs um i think the big thing for me is well naturally the big thing is going to be how healthy are they going to be which isn't a scheme thing so i can't really talk that much about that portion if they're healthy i think the offense is going to be good and i think they've shown like with their starting lineup in particular if you have the big three out there you have nurk out there and you, if you have royce out there now if that's going to be your guy or grace now whatever the case may be like they should be able to generate good enough shots. Like you have two, at least two guys, if not three, if you include Bill, that can get two on the ball almost whenever they want to. You have Nurk as a passing hub and a really, really, really good screener if they do want to operate second side to have him setting pinions and stuff like that. I don't really have concerns about the offense and defensively with Nurk in. I have and have had my questions with Nurk defensively uh, throughout his career, but like at the very least, that is an element of size and rebounding that helps. And more importantly, that slots KD into more of a Roma role defensively as a four, and I think that's where he's best used. And I think you can defend well enough with that group. My primary concern is with the Suns is what happens when they don't have a center on the floor? Because the Drew Eubanks signing just did not hit the way that I thought it would and many Suns fans thought it would. He hasn't been consistently good. We will frame it that way. And so when they go to KD at the five, I see the theory of it on both ends of the floor particularly offensively. If KD's your five, you have a whole bunch of space to operate with. But with Bill out in particular, it just feels like 
it feels sacrilegious to say they're easy to scheme for because that's a lot of talent and like it's not easy to deal with them. But like conceptually, cool. KD has a post up. Devin Booker's one pass away. We will double KD. We will rotate the Devin Booker. We will make sure that the last person in this chain when you swing the ball around is going to be the worst shooter on the floor. And I feel like if you are able to do that enough in, within a playoff setting, especially with who they can end up facing in the first round in particular, like I, I would like to see them solve that portion of it. And then defensively, they just haven't been able to hold water defensively with KD at the five. And big number that popped for me, like I have to <clears> – matter of fact, no, it is updated. got it after the Lakers game. Like with KD at the five, filter don't clean the glass to get all the centers off the floor. An offensive rebound rate allowed of 39.7. Opponents are rebounding nearly 40% of their misses with KD on the floor without a center on the floor. If they can't end possessions and they can't generate great shots for the people that they want to have these great shots, I do wonder kind of what the ceiling is going to be with their small ball groups. And it just in general, their small ball groups are small outside of KD. And so like now, those are, that's probably where I land with concerns with Phoenix. Now, offensively, that last shooter in the chain problem gets easier for them to solve when they're healthy because yeah. it can be, you know, the big three plus two of O'Neal, Allen, Gordon. There's enough shooting. I just think those lineups are too small defensively. Like, they're going to be dynamite offensively. But you, the, the rebounding number you just cited is, like, there's a certain point where you are not playing sustainable basketball because of how many second chances. Teams are just playing volleyball against you. That number is past that point. Like you just cannot win if you're almost giving up forty percent of your of the opponent's misses back to them. The other team with this profile I wanted you to hit on quickly. Very quietly, the Clippers are three and four in their last seven games. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention because I think they established such a high level of play when they went like twenty seven and five or whatever they did over such a long period of time after the initial stretch with Harden was so bad. That I think they everyone was like, okay, they that's a proven thing. Probably internally, they also hit the dog days before All Star and had a couple of like yeah. Paul George missed a game, Kawhi missed a game, Zoo missed a couple of games where they're like, we've proven it to ourselves. We're gonna just you know like it, it happens. Um, they're fourth overall in offense for the season, tied with Phoenix in defense. So thirteenth, fourteenth, whatever it ends up being, their defense has fallen apart in the last ten games. They're averaging, they're allowing a points allowed per possession that would be last for the season. Part of it is their rebounding has been bad, and they're a small team. I think I think if there's something to pick at here, they're a bad defensive rebounding team. They're a little bit small, but they have hit a gear defensively for prolonged periods of the season when they're engaged that Phoenix cannot touch. Like, the Clippers have done enough defensively when they really care. Where I'm like, all right, that's a legit two-way team. But, you know, you don't want to fall too far out of the number one seed. It's getting less and less likely that they're going to get all the way back up there. They were there for a hot second. Um, and you don't want to lose too much touch with the habits that you built when you were becoming a dominant team. What's your concern level on the Clippers' defense, and what are you looking for? Um, I think relatively low because of what you said. Like when the when the slide happened, I think is where I took a little bit of the concern glasses off. And it's like, okay, this is early February, leading to the all-star break. You have Kawhi and Paul George both doing all-star festivities. Insert James Harden joke here with an all-star break. I think they're gonna be fine. So I like I leave that portion alone. I will say in terms of things that I'm monitoring. One is going to be the transition defense. Uh, since the beginning of February, they're 28th, per clean the glass, 28th in transition frequency allowed. Teams are running on them a lot. And I think that's 29th specifically off of misses. 
And from there, they are doing a very poor job. Like it's reminiscent of the early Clippers stint with James Harden. They are doing a very poor job of matching up in transition. It's not even really a floor balance issue for me. It is just closest guy to the ball is picking up someone else. And then you got two guys sitting in the paint trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to run over here. Next thing you know, a wide open corner three has been given up. They have to clean that portion up. And then one thing, um, another thing I'm going to continue to monitor, and it really popped in the most recent Kings game, the switching in the half court does not feel good right now. And, like, I wonder how much of that is just, again, getting back into the flow of things post-All-Star break or just that early All-Star break stretch. But it does feel like it's a whole lot of standing and pointing. You get that guy. Like, James Harden, as much as I complimented him a little bit early in the year about what his defensive effort has been like with the Clippers, like, a little bit of malaise there. Kawhi Leonard is communicating a lot. And, like, generally that's a positive. But it feels like it's weeding into the other side to where, hey, Kawhi's having to point out a whole lot of direction defensively. And with some of these vets, he shouldn't have to do as much as he does there off the ball, in addition to who he's having to guard. And to your earlier point overall with the rebounding, this isn't a big team. It's like you can't even really afford to have gaps when you're trying to switch because you're already giving up mismatches because of the size. If it's size mismatch plus space because you're not where you need to be, you're not connecting with people, they're just driving gaps, they're cutting gaps, you set up space to set up pin-ins on the weak side, you're all out of sorts. And I think that's probably the bigger thing that I'm going to continue to track when they're in the half court. Like, what is the switching going to look like? Like, there was a play... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say quickly that there was a play around two minutes left in the second quarter of that Kings game. Uh, late De'Aaron Fox just walking the ball at the floor, Mike Brown's calling out something. And as De'Aaron Fox kind of drifts to the right side of the floor, Kawhi just calls out a switch. And everyone got confused from there. Like Terrence Mann kind of looks like, wait a minute. Well, James Harden already has Kevin Herter. DeMontis Sabonis is here, but Zoo's at the free throw line. Who am I guarding exactly? Harrison Barnes goes from the right corner to the left corner. James Harden is standing in one spot like, nah, you pick this guy up. So while they're all trying to sort out who they're guarding, then it's just an easy pick and roll for De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis. You get two on the ball. Sabonis gets a layup. And it's like, I don't love seeing these kind of breakdowns. Like, why can you not communicate? Maybe they were just confused that Kawhi was talking so much. And they're like, wait, who said that? Who said that? Um, look, you mentioned the switching, which is on point. Because when they're engaged, they don't mess up switches. They, they are they're switching to your, into the bodies. They, they don't oh, – gaps do not open. And, and, and to your earlier point, like Harden was doing his part defensively for most of that stretch, playing some of the best defense of his career, which is low bar, I realize, but all they need him to do. Um so I'm, I'm going to give them a pass on that. I will say, you know, they made a conscious decision at the trade deadline. We're not making a move. We're not going to put our first-round pick in play because it's the only one we have left. Our pick's going to be frozen once we get over the second apron. we got to keep it. We're not even going to compete for the Royce O'Neal price at three second-round picks. I don't know how hard they looked at that, to be clear, but they didn't get him, and Phoenix got him for what they got him for. So that should tell you something. We're going to mm-hmm. roll with what we got. We know who their starters are. Their starters are excellent. Their first three off the bench are Powell, fantastic. Russ has hit a little bit of a rough patch in the last two weeks where he's starting to look like Lakers Russ, and they need to get that back to where it was before. And then the backup center thing, I like the way they look with Tice more than Plumlee, only because Tice is a pseudo-shooting five, and like that gives Russ a little more space to wreak havoc in the paint. Plumlee's mm-hmm. probably a better overall player, than Tice, I'm not sure he's a better fit. Amir Coffey is guy number nine, and they've been getting to him more for various reasons. So that's something. Um, just I'm just looking at it, but um, 
I, I would like them. They have a couple of – they have a Lakers game, which is a big national TV game tomorrow, uh, Minnesota on Sunday, then two games against Milwaukee within the next week, and then Minnesota again. I would like them in some of those games to, like, show up really – and Minnesota had a landmark win against them earlier in a couple weeks ago. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not worried, worried about this team. I just – there's been some slippage in meaningful ways. Yeah, like probably too early to press the big red button, but it's no, very no, no, much no, no. a yeah, it's very much a well, what's some of the personnel limitations in particular the size limitations? This is what it looks like if you aren't keyed in. Like you're not gonna be able to out talent the West. You may have more talent, but these are really good teams. Well and matchups so keep an eye on Denver. Matchups, Denver, huge, Minnesota, huge. You're gonna be at a size deficit against either of those teams if you get them in a playoff series, and we talked about their Minnesota games coming up. It's just it's an interesting test for them. It's not it looked like they were just gonna go cruise through the rest of the regular season, maybe even get the one seed and like be the toast of the NBA. And now they've hit a little bit of a rough stretch, but I, I just I, like they're they're still in my to be clear, like I'm picking Denver to come out of the West. I have from day one. I probably would put Clippers number two, and they're still in my very, very inner circle, small inner circle of contenders. Okay. Nikaias Duncan. The dunker spot with Steve Jones Jr., who's also been kind enough to lend me some time. Old man in the three in the three things with JJ Redick. Um and just A plus NBA content. As you can tell, if you want to know what's going on in the games, this is a guy to listen to. We will do eight minutes on the Charlotte Hornets the next time you come on, <laughs> if they're still playing well. I will give you eight total minutes on the Charlotte Hornets. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me.